Hello, everyone, and welcome to Raising Poets and Pirates, the podcast for Christian single mothers raising sons. My name is Natalie, and today we have a wonderful guest, Reverend Dr. Joseph Boot. Dr. Boot is a Christian thinker and cultural apologist, philosopher, author, founder and president of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. He also served as founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto for 14 years. Furthermore, Dr. Boot was also the founding chancellor of Westminster Classical Christian Academy in Toronto. This is how I personally know him and his lovely family. My children attended the academy along with his children, and his lovely wife Jenny was the geography teacher and dramatic arts teacher at the school. Might I add that she was also the producer and director of the most amazing theatrical productions at the academy. Dr. Boot has worked in the fields of Christian apologetics, worldview education, and church leadership for over 25 years. He has spoken and guest lectured globally at numerous university events, seminaries, churches, colleges, and conferences. With his extensive experience, I asked Dr. Boot to be a guest on my podcast to talk about the public education system and the way it works to emasculate our sons. Most Christian single mothers are not able to send their sons to private faith-based schools or to homeschool due to finances, location, and or custody arrangements. This episode is not to discourage you if you are in this situation. Rather, this interview with Dr. Joe Boot is to inform you about the reality of public education and its impact on our sons, to equip you with strategies and possible solutions to help you navigate the tension between ensuring your sons receive a quality education while also preserving and fostering their sense of masculinity. Welcome and thank you for joining me, Dr. Boot. It's great to be with you, Natalie. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> Appreciate it. Before we begin, I'd like to ask you a few uh, icebreaker questions. First question, what's your favorite book apart from the Bible and why? Oh, my. That's a difficult question because there are so many uh, books that have influenced me so much over the years. Um. I suppose if I if I was absolutely forced to choose uh, a book um, that um, if I was going to be be stuck on a um, an island alone <laughs> uh, with uh, with with only being able to take um, uh, a particular book with me, then um, this might not be that inspiring to. Um, well, let me let me let me pick two actually, just to just to let me off the hook here a little bit. Okay. I think I'd probably want to take um, Herman Doerverd's uh, new critique of theoretical thought, which was a a tremendous work of Christian philosophy um, in the twentieth century. I think perhaps mm -hmm. probably he's the most important Christian philosopher since uh, Thomas Aquinas and mm -hmm. uh, and and Augustine. Um, I think I'd also want to uh, I'd also want to to carry along with me um RJ Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law because you know the Bible enjoins us in Psalm 119 to meditate on the law of God and on the ways of God and on the wisdom of God and uh, that to me was a a seminal book a very very mm -hmm. important book in my own life and thinking so those those two books if I could sneak two maybe those two um I realize they're rather narrowly uh, uh, in my field, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of sort of um, uh, the more popular end of things, I guess a favorite novel of mine would have been actually 
uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I thought you would say something from C.S. Lewis, perhaps, or... I've read a lot of Lewis uh, over the years. He's written some. Uh, he's written some marvelous books. He he didn't write that many novels, of course. I mean, he did write mm-hmm. the children's series, uh, the Narnia Chronicles, and he also wrote a less well-known space trilogy, uh, which I read uh, actually in my late teens. Um, Perilandra, that hideous strength. Um, it was a. Tr- it was a. Tr- I can't remember the name of the first one now. Um, anyway, there were three in that little space trilogy mm-hmm. as novels. Th- those were those were excellent, and of course, um, Lewis has written some uh, some fabulous books uh, that uh, are certainly treasured here, right on my right on my shelves here to my <laughs> to my right. Uh, Wonderful. But, um, but uh, as a my my daughters were I, actually I think I probably am responsible for giving my daughters their love of Jane Austen. So, oh, that's good. <laughs> Second question, if you had to lose your eyesight or your hearing, which one would it be and why? Oh, my. Um, I think probably I would have to let the, I'd have to let my eyesight go first. Um, Because I think in, uh, especially in today's world with, um, with Braille um, and uh, audio books and uh, other ways of consuming um, written material. Um, the loss of, I think, the people's voices, the loss of music, uh, the loss of the music of creation itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's an impossible choice in one respect, but if I was given 10 seconds to decide, I think I would go that route. Yes, I agree. Most people have answered they'd rather lose their hearing. And I'm like, I'm, I already wear glasses. I know what colors are, but there's so much I would miss hearing in terms of music, sound, voices. No, I agree with you. And last question, what's your favorite city in the world and why? Let's say for vacation. For a vacation. Oh, boy. Gosh, I could have uh, I could have done with some prep time on these. These are really <laughs> hard because I'm... <laughs> there's no wrong I'm answer. Actually... I'm actually quite well traveled. Yes. Um, so you know what? I think for vacation, um, probably Cape Town mm. uh, in South Africa of the places that I've that I've actually uh, visited, just in terms of the sheer natural beauty of uh, of the place for a for a city. Um, and uh, I mean, there've been there have been some cities that i visited over the years in in the in the far east and in the middle east as well which sort of are a, are a wonderful assault on the senses but i think mm-hmm. if i had to just pick one um for for a city vacation it'd be cape town nice i've heard it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world mm-hmm. yeah excellent so let's begin i was reading your articles from the ezra institute on the myth of neutrality in education, articles I think you've written over a decade ago. And you had stated, and I'll quote, many Christians in our time have bought into the idea of the neutrality of the purpose and nature of education and facts, that a table is a table and cats are cats to the Christian and non-believer alike. However, can you tell um, my audience, especially Christian single mothers, the truth about neutrality in public education, that it doesn't exist pretty much? 
just to give a, a bit of a framework, because I grew up with that. Actually, I, I grew up in pub- public education. My parents were Christians, and they thought it wasn't necessary for faith-based education. They thought school is neutral, reading, math, and reading, math, and arithmetic, and that it's unbiased. But it's not true. No. Well, I mean, a good illustration of that right now from popular culture is the war over language. The idea that reading, writing, and arithmetic are just somehow um, religiously neutral ideas. There's a war over pronoun pronouns right now within uh, the whole idea of grammar. So the most basic rules of language are being manipulated mm-hmm. in order to try and reinvent reality. So, uh, in fact, right now there's a controversy going on in the uh, in the Church of England um, around uh, the we've moved on now from beyond the whole idea of um, gay marriage, even in the church, uh, even in the churches, uh, to the question of whether we can actually call God our Father. Isn't that the Archbishop of York here in Britain just said that's uh, oppressively patriarchal? So. Uh, you can immediately see that in this culture uh, war, really, a cultural struggle over language, over mm-hmm. pronouns, that there's nothing at all neutral about, uh, religiously neutral about language. I think it was the German philosopher Nietzsche who said, no God, no grammar, because if you don't have uh, a God who's created all things, who's ordered all things and structured all things, who has a law word, for mm-hmm. the whole area of language, the lingual aspect of our lives, um, then there there can be no normative structure to to language. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if you look at the English language um, in some detail, uh, you would notice people notice immediately. I mean, perhaps we're not always that self conscious about it, but the development of the English language has been radically formed and shaped by Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, the words that we use, the King James Bible in particular, and then through the and through uh, in terms of the resources of the King James Bible, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. uh, of course, which was why Shakespeare was so central for a long time to education in English literature um, and and language. So there is no um, there's no neutral approach to language because the basic rules of language use are being challenged now in terms of alternate religious foundations mm-hmm. um the attempt to uh, de-gender language which of course is impossible for the french i mean <laughs> how do you how do you de-gender reality uh with the french language any um, latin based language pretty much exactly so there's a myth there um and then to go to mathematics uh, the uh, the philosophers don't agree about what numbers are. There's no fundamental agreement uh, between the, the Christian and the unbeliever about the nature of numbers. In fact, the ancient pagans, uh, the Pythagoreans, for example, and some of our listeners will be familiar with Pythagoras from math, from mm-hmm. mathematics, at least the name, um, they believed in what we call a uh, world number theory. They believed that everything in created reality depended on number and that there was some invisible transcendent world of numbers on which all of created reality depended. And they actually wrote hymns 
to numbers. They I once read a hymn to the number 10 uh, written by the Pythagoreans because they worshipped numbers. Um, that's on one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is that numbers, some philosophers have said, are just a shortcut to doing logic. Others like John Dewey, one of the founders of modern education, said no, they're just tools. They don't refer to anything. They're just tools for doing jobs. Um, and so when we ask the most basic question of what are numbers, and then we can move on to say, well, not just what are numbers, but when we begin to use numbers, mm-hmm. uh, is there a uh, are there mathematical theorems, mathematical axioms um, that can establish themselves that are uh, that don't need any um, tr- uh, uh, transcendent reference, something that goes beyond number to establish them? Actually, there was a famous mathematician called Kurt Goodell who famously uh, framed his incompleteness theorem, which so showed that uh, in every um mathematical system um there is always an incompleteness there's always a step of faith needed uh, mm-hmm. uh in terms of provability so at almost every level actually of those things we think of as hard science like mathematics or uh, language we find that actually it's religious ideas it's religious worldview religious presuppositions that actually inform our theories about language and about uh, number. And so ultimately for the Christian, it comes down to whether this world is created and all the facts of created reality are governed by God and are ordered by him. In other words, think about it this way, Natalie, uh, the difference between the Christian and the the non-Christian worldview is a bit like uh, the way in which a join the dot puzzle works or a connect the dot puzzle. Mm You know, before there was Nintendo and Game Boy and I don't know, what is it, Xbox and uh, uh, PlayStation and all these things that are today. We used to do connect the dot puzzles. And uh, when you open up a connect the dot puzzle book, uh, you see basically a bunch of dots on a page. And the idea of it is that when a child takes a crayon or a color pencil and joins, connects those dots, sometimes there's a number next to the dot to determine the order of connection that when you connect those dots, a picture emerges. And the the essential reason why a connect-the-dot puzzle works is that there is an author to the puzzle, Mm -hmm. and those dots aren't arranged at random. They're not chaotic. There is an author, and so there is a meaning. And what happens is the child, in connecting those dots, discovers the meaning that's already there. They may look like a chaotic bunch of dots on a page, but the child in joining them discovers the meaning. It's a house, it's a car, it's a giraffe, right. whatever it whatever it may be. But for the unbeliever who has no creator God, no sovereign God who governs and determines all the facts of experience, in other words, for the Christian, creation is meaning. Mm-hmm. It, the meaning is there that we discover. For the unbeliever, there is no meaning. And in fact, there's no ultimate meaning. We must give or lend meaning to a chaotic bunch of facts. And so uh, if that were the case, when you approach to connect the dot puzzle, if it were just a random collection of dots, the child could invent any meaning that they want. Well, I'm going to join it this way. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. Um, and so meanings, not meaning, but meanings would be purely private. 
So that's the fundamental difference between the Christian world and life view and the non-Christian one. And that's why there can be no neutrality in education, because either this world is created and governed and ordered in all things as a world of total meaning by the sovereign God, so that human knowledge is reconstructive. We discover the meaning that's there. Or this is a chaotic world. There's no sovereign God. Human beings are uh, the product of random chance from the goo through the zoo to you. Mm -hmm. And we can create our own meanings and live an illusion. And that's why we're in a confrontation right now in education about the meaning of number. Um, you know, that math is somehow white colonial patriarchal if, you know, mm -hmm. five times five is 25 uh, or um, language is um, homophobic and misogynist if if we can only have the the uh, pronouns that make sense in English. Uh, and we've got to add he, she, it. It's not to, we have to add it, they, zer, you know, them, yeah. et cetera, and make a nonsense of language. That is because there is a religious set of assumptions under both those different views of, of grammar. And that's what immediately exposes the myth of neutrality. I mean, obviously, a myth of neutrality is easy to expose if you're talking about history, mm -hmm. the study of history or in various other sciences. Um, it's harder when you talk about some of those, the most fundamental areas of study that we think of as sort of indisputable. Mm -hmm. um, but no, there are various different uh, schools of thought. And so when you burrow down a little bit, you discover the, the myth of religious neutrality. Absolutely. And I appreciate your in-depth uh, explanation of that because it reminds me of, I, I have uh, my son, in high public high school, and I'm homeschooling my other one. But it's so interesting. He at one point told me, "Mom, they're trying to confuse me," and mm -hmm. he was really struggling with that because he also felt like he didn't have a voice. There's just so many different things, so many things to say. You've got it wrong. This and that. He was shut down even for his pro-life views, and mm -hmm. he's still trying. Like he's almost done, but he's trying to navigate that. And it got me thinking. A lot of young male voices in the public education is is being silenced, being snuffed, and even masculinity is being emasculated. Can you um can you give examples in public education where that is happening? Because maybe some my listeners, Christian single mothers, maybe they need to pay attention attention to some red flags. I don't know if you have any um examples mm -hmm. to share or how the public education is contributing to the emasculation of boys. Mm -hmm. Well, that process has actually been going on quite a long time. Um, it might be worth your listeners knowing, at least in the Canadian landscape, uh, for example, in Ontario, that um, the state wasn't actually involved in education until the end of the 19th century. Mm. So in many respects, the whole idea of public education, of a state education uh, that sort of offers itself as a neutral education is a very, very contemporary idea. Um, education was previously something that was handled um, privately and by the church. Uh, the churches had schools and mm -hmm. um, there were universal systems of free education in the West in places like Scotland long before the the, the, the state was ever involved. Um, 
And initially, uh, in fact, in Ontario, there was a man, a man named Egerton Riot, Ryerson. He was a, um, a Methodist minister originally, and um, he explored the Prussian system. And he uh, proposed, with good intention, I think, initially, uh, a uh, rather than having lots of different Protestant uh, schools, because the Catholics had a system, so you had a, a Christian formation there, mm -hmm. uh, broadly speaking, um, that there could be a, uh, instead of having Baptist schools and Presbyterian schools and so on and so forth, why not have a Protestant education system? Um, and the proposal was this would be, funded by the funded by the taxpayer and to be honest with you natalie i think that in the end in order to uh to understand ultimately why we've ended up for boys uh where we are you have to go all the way back to the state's interference because when the state takes over something it's starting to to uh, the fundamentally a claim is really being made that this is an area where the state has primary responsibility or primary obligation um, and not the family. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, parents are first educators. Now we can delegate uh, our, our edu the educational process to teachers. Um, and that's important that uh, some of us just simply aren't cut out to home educate. I'm always impressed with people like you who, have this uh, ability to to educate um, in the home, um, but that takes um, that takes a certain kind of resolve, a certain set of skills, um, a certain a certain um, a discipline that some people would struggle to to, to marshal, and so um, we delegate uh, uh, education in certain contexts to others or at least part of education but it's still under our parental supervision now why is that important mm -hmm. well as soon as the family ceases to be uh the ultimate authority in the context of education then especially fathers are being withdrawn from the process I mean, if you ask yourself today how many fathers really know what's going on in the classroom of their sons and daughters in school it's not very many. Uh, and um, so, and I know, of course, there are others who are in situations where they're single parents. It becomes even more difficult to mm -hmm. really keep a handle on everything that's going on in the classroom. But whenever the family is sidelined or minimized, that's a problem. Now, <clears throat> that's relevant to the question you've asked because I remember writing to uh, my own uh, Ontario Board of Education many years ago. My children were actually always in um, private Christian education because uh, the Lord made that possible for us. But um, I was writing to the Ontario Board of Education about about uh, general things that they were saying and claiming. Um, and uh, specifically, it was in this whole area of gender. And I remember receiving a letter back from them. This must have been um, getting on for 17 or 18 years ago now mm -hmm. in which they said our children and I was I'd been talking about uh children in Ontario's public schools um I remember the striking expression they used in the letter back to me because I was complaining about the nature of the curriculum that they were introducing they said our children need uh the the kind of education that uh 
uh, our egalitarian form of curriculum is preparing for them. And I remember being struck by basically the state's claim to ownership of the child. Mm. Modern education has essentially said that the family is kind of a poisonous environment. And the longer we can have our children, that we can put children in state education uh, from as young as possible, from kindergarten right through to 18. Remember, we've continuously extended the time that children are out from under the care of their parents Mm -hmm. uh, for much of the day in these state institutions. So as quickly as possible, they want them in and they incentivize this through uh, offering to subsidize the state wants to subsidize kindergarten education child care wants to subsidize this and then gradually laws change so that over time so even when i was in school natalie in england um, you could leave school at 16 to be apprenticed in a as an electrician or a plumber or whatever it might have been or in the family business um now that's that's changed even in my in in the last 25 years in britain now everybody's got to stay until they're 18 whether or not they're suited to academic a work or not so part of the issue of um and and i'm sure you'll have other questions on this we can talk about some more but my, my the first thing i would say is that the the way in which children are being alienated increasingly from the family from the authority of their parents and the way the state education system is tending to pit itself against the family we want children away and out from the influence of the family where they're learning, you know, oppressive patriarchal uh, lessons about marriage and human identity and so on mm-hmm. uh, into the egalitarian education of the benevolent state that is going to readjust our children for to be um productive members of the kind of society that the modern state wants. So the shift has moved really away from the critical goal of education um, in uh, basically passing on the traditions and the, the knowledge and the understanding of our civilization, in this case, Western civilization, to um, creating uh, social justice warriors Mm-hmm. for the for the modern state and so we've seen a radical politicization of education and to do that critically you have to minimize the influence of the family of mum and dad in the child's life and that's why I'm mean, it's not surprising that one of your sons said to you they're trying to confuse me where does that confusion arise from the contradiction between what he's being told in the school mm-hmm. and what he's learning in the family so one of the reasons I was passionate about starting Christian schools in Canada, and you mentioned the one that we launched in Toronto, Westminster Classical Christian Academy, and that actually helped launch a classical Christian um, education movement in Canada. I think there are now seven or eight oh, classical schools now in Ontario alone that have sprung up since Westminster was launched um, because we have to... Uh, once again reconnect the parent and the school families and the school that in that act of um, delegation there is a partnership between the family between mum and dad and the school in the education of the child Um, not a conflict but a partnership and that is uh, that is absolutely vital and crucial um, that that uh, that parents 
ultimately is having authority in the area of the education of their children is is maintained and that there's an alignment between the family and what's going on in the school when you drop a child off to school any parent can relate to this you don't say to your child as you're dropping them off or as they're leaving for school rebel against everything question everything challenge your teacher <laughs> uh, disrespect the, the the headmaster um kick back against authority no what you say to your child is be polite listen to your teachers respect your teachers be courteous to your classmates um respect authority in other words what you say even subliminally to a child when you hand them over to a school or to another teacher to for the for part of their education is you're saying to your child when you place them in the under the authority of a teacher in a school you're saying receive their authority as mm -hmm. you would receive mine right receive their authority as you would receive mine i'm delegating this aspect of your education to them and i think if we sort of soaked in the significance of that as parents uh, and the impact of that on the child it would help us understand uh, something of how uh, of why an environment has been shaped there with modern secular humanism and its progressive neo-Marxist agenda. We'll talk about that in a moment uh, to to alienate children from their parents and from the family in order to come up with a specific kind of product. And I would argue that that's the goal of most public education today. It's not uh, uh, an education to open up the critical faculties of the child to to soak in and learn and, and digest the fruits of mm -hmm. um, hundreds of years of learning um, and then to begin to to take that on board and then contribute to that. It's actually to remake the child in terms of a particular socio-political agenda. It's so true. And again, I'm going to use my older son as an example because he's in public school. I, re I remember he came home once and told me in his English class, they had a discussion about um, the question was, do you think women are the most oppressed in the world? It was in light of the tragic death of the Iranian woman who wouldn't wear her hijab correctly and in, the, in mm -hmm. the end lost her life. And my son, he had, he thought the question was not, was a bit uh, problematic in that, are you referring to in Iran? Are you referring to Iceland? Are you referring to Canada? He said, you're the most vulnerable right now. He said, or babies in the womb and the teacher did not like where he was going and he pretty much told him you know what you really can't answer this question because you're 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 a man and he felt dejected because now along with the confusion he's getting mm -hmm. he being a young man it's like you don't get to say anything because you're part of the problem he got he sort of got that message and and mm -hmm. he i said what did you say in response and he said well i was so shocked because he's asking everyone and i was thinking so half of us don't have a, get a chance to discuss this because we're 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 we're, we're boys, and you just yes. found that bizarre. And so I, I'm glad you shared that with me because I probably wouldn't wouldn't have ever mm -hmm. known. And so as single mothers, and they've they've sort of I've asked them, what are your concerns? It's that, what do I do? Do I should they? They're not the school doesn't want parents to walk alongside, as you said. They're pushing them away. So how can we engage? with the administration to address our concerns or mm. do you have any advice on that and 
because I was ready to hop in the car. And then, of course, he's he's much oh. older. He's like, no, mom, I'll, I'll handle this because mm-hmm. this was infuriating to me. Yeah. Well, what he's running up against there as a young black man, interestingly enough, is mm-hmm. the hierarchy of rights um, that has been created by uh, a neo-Marxist worldview that informs um, progressive education today. So um, there was a philosopher called Michel Foucault who talked about the wheel of oppression. Um, And the basic idea of this this wheel of oppression, and this is true actually of um, what we would call uh, now, um, strictly speaking, is critical theory. Um, This is what... uh, these children are up against even without knowing it or knowing the origin of it in fact many of the teachers won't even know the origin of it but the basic idea uh is that the world is divided up into the oppressors and the oppressed Mm -hmm. um this is part of the marxist conflict theory um marx for those who don't know was a 19th century german uh jewish philosopher um, and uh, has been incredibly influential on amongst the intellectual elite. And um, the particular version now of Marxism that you're dealing with and that you're actually referring to is called cultural Marxism. It came out of the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt in the 1930s, made its way to America um, uh, between then and the 1960s, and has ever since been radically shaping education across uh, the Western world. Um, And Foucault, in some respects, um, uh, reflects these ideas when he says, you know, if you you can imagine a a big wheel uh, and we'll call it the wheel of oppression, Um, if you've divided the world up into the oppressed and the oppressor, uh, the, the the decision of the of the Mark, Marxist thinking is that at the heart of all oppression in the world, Natalie, is mm-hmm. the Christian family, the Christian idea of the family, um, the Christian idea of marriage. Uh, Marx basically said he understood that you can't have a, a, a social world revolution without a sexual revolution. Um, and he said at the heart of all oppression is the family. Uh, first, because the opiate of the people, the myth of God is reinforced by the family and the family structure. So he says you have to criticize the family and then you have to remake it in order to change society. He mm-hmm. understood that. Well, these neo-Marxists, they picked this up because Marx himself, his focus generally was economic. The cultural Marxists focused on culture. And of course, the primary instrument that passes on culture to young people is the field of education. And what they said was in this idea of the oppressor and the oppressed is that the, the at the heart of all oppression, at the center of the wheel, at the hub, right in that center of that wheel, is the Christian family. Most especially, of course, uh, because we live in North America and, and Europe because of Christendom being mm-hmm. European, um, the white Christian family is particularly the most oppressive group. Now, out from there... As you move out to the rim of the wheel, everybody is oppressed to 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 uh, to some degree. So the only people who are not oppressed are are the Western Christian uh, con- uh, family, particularly the the father, as 
you know, the patriarchal head of the family. He's the so me, Natalie, the person you're talking to today <laughs> on this view is the very essence of all oppression. Uh, and, and I'm fundamentally the problem. So the idea is that the oppressor, me, must become the oppressed. So I must be moved from the center to the very outer edge. Now, between the center and the edge, there are varying degrees of oppression. Uh, and uh, this is why you've probably heard in schools now they're doing uh, um, in Canada and actually across much of the West, children are being taught that they are, uh, that the world is divided up this way and they are objects of privilege um, to greater or lesser degrees. And every time, so the teacher will stand them on one end of the gym and they have to take everybody's on one end of the gym and they will have to take a step forward if the if the statement that the teacher makes represents them and so if they've got um, a mum and dad they've got to take a step forward oh yeah um you know if they are uh, christian they've got to take a step forward if they're male they've got to take a step forward etc and the f the more steps that you take, the more of an oppressor you are. Then they're told at the end of these questions to look behind them and see all the people behind them, some who are going to still be stood against the wall, of how oppressive they are to all of these people, all of their classmates. I've so seen a video version of that. Yeah. Right. And so what um, your boy is up against there, I don't know whether it's Santi or the other one. but Ernesto. Um, yeah, it's Ernesto. Yeah, Ernesto. Um, what he's up against there is that, well, he's a Christian man. He's a young Christian man. Therefore, he is an oppressor. Um, it doesn't matter that he qualifies on one level of being oppressed because he's not from the European white uh, family. Mm -hmm. um, he he qualifies he on that point. He's he he qualifies as being oppressed, but he's got all of these other strikes against him. He's he's uh, his mother is a Christian. He goes to church. He's a man. He's got Christian convictions. So he is an oppressor. And as an oppressor, he's got no right to have an opinion on the issue then of abortion because uh, he's uh, he's male. He's Christian. Therefore, his opinion isn't worth anything. And so this is what uh, I mean, he's he's run up against that. And um, and this is what we're finding now is that let's consider, for example, Natalie, some of the the outspoken feminists now in our culture, like uh, J.K. Rowling uh, being one example mm -hmm. uh, or even, you know, famous uh, feminists of the 20th century like Jermaine Greer and others who are now being canceled as oppressors because they will not support the trans movement. Mm -hmm. So what you've got now is this hierarchy of, of, uh, of oppression, and that's created a hierarchy of rights. And at the bottom of that, I'm afraid, are young Christian men like Ernesto. Um, and that means he hasn't got a right to speak on these issues, even if he's right, even if he is absolutely right scientifically that it's that it's a human life at conception. Uh, that 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 50% of the chromosomes of that child um are uh the man's um that the, it's not a case of simply it's the woman's body because you have an independent separate body mm -hmm. and unless we're going to say again that human beings can be owned and possessed 
uh, and owned like chattel, um, then how can uh, a woman say, well, what's in the womb is just uh, that other person is owned by me and I can dispose of them at my will. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if his arguments are right. It's that he belongs to a class. It's an abstract class. Doesn't matter how kind or sweet or 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 or, or warm and just and friendly and respectful, it doesn't count because you belong to this abstract class, and therefore your opinion is ruled out, um, and you must be judged. You must become one of the. You must move, be moved from being an oppressor to being one of the oppressed. It's a repressive tolerance. It's an right. inverting of what they see as an unjust order. So that's what he's encountered in school. So, uh, be because I we are limited on time, for someone like me who who feels a bit helpless, uh, in mm -hmm. terms of how what sort of strategies we could use to counteract if you could speak to the Christian single mothers who have, who mm -hmm. have sons, what kind of strategies? Cause sometimes I feel as soon as he comes home, I have to reprogram him. There's yeah. some things he picks up and thinks, okay, maybe they're right. Or, you know, have more discussions or is there, is there any way mm -hmm. because we can't withdraw, withdraw them from the school. We're unable to put them in, in another school or what, what advice could you give to Christian single mothers, like how they can navigate and find counteract yeah. these negative influences that are affecting our sons in the public education oh, system? Yeah. Fair, well, first tips. of all, I, th I think, um, you know, listening to a podcast like this, uh, because the first thing you need is to be aware of the issues. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, I think one of the biggest things that is so ruinous, Natalie, is that people are not informed and they, they're not aware. Um, they think their child is getting this neutral education. Um, then they're often unaware of what's being pumped in through the curriculum. And especially disturbing for young boys and for, for, for young men in school is the radical LGBTQ uh, ideology, as you know, that is now being mm -hmm. pumped into almost every facet of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And that, in part, of course, is to designed to destroy the idea of masculinity Mm -hmm. um destroy or destroy male identity um and um destroy fundamentally the the idea of family and of the christian family and if any if there's anything that young men young boys need today um it's the context of uh a proper understanding of what the ideal what god's best is for them as men in terms of taking responsibility and marriage and family and children, that we desperately need that if we're going to raise a new generation of young men. So informing yourself, I would say, is step one. And mm -hmm. obviously this podcast, I think, is a great opportunity to do that um, with you know interviews and with guidance from somebody like you who's been in these situations, who knows what it means to raise sons in the single parent environment and to try and navigate some of these challenges. So I think that that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing I think is we do have to be, as you know, prepared to challenge some of these things and take some of our concerns to the schools and to teachers. Um, we may be called names. Uh, and we obviously we're not trying to make our things, dif the things difficult for our children, mm -hmm. but then there are times when what's going on needs to be challenged and we need to express, you see, if more parents actually express their concern about the things that are being taught, the things that are being said, um, 
there would be a much better opportunity and chance of changing what's happening in the schools. So engagement. Now, obviously, for single mums, the notion of getting onto school boards and so on, very, very difficult because of the the challenge and pressures of time. Uh, but even if you can't get involved at that level of mm-hmm. in, in school governance to challenge these issues, uh, making uh, your opinion heard, periodically writing a letter if necessary, meeting with a teacher, meeting with the head and so on, that kind of engagement is really important. And, you know, remember this, the vast majority of these teachers uh, are ill-informed and uninformed. They've been through the Ontario or whatever province it is, a, a teacher training program. Um, they've been indoctrinated themselves. They very often haven't heard an alternate perspective. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we maybe we'll be bringing very new things and very valuable things to their ears. It's not going to be easy, but I would say that's a, a second step that we can proactively take is just we don't just have to let the education happen and and, uh, uh, and just let it continue without ever challenging the mm-hmm. things that we're concerned about. After all, it is a taxpayer funded uh, system. It's a public system and therefore the public has a right to input. Uh, into it so that would be a second thing a third thing i think that's especially important uh, you alluded to it uh is this whole challenge of deprogramming now you know that does mean what, what do we mean by that i think it means first of all that we we do have to if our children are in public education we have got to try and engage them in conversation about what they learned that day Mm-hmm. What were the things that came up in class? Did they have any concerns? What were the what were the things that the teachers were trying to impress today? There's lots of ways of uh, doing that, of course. Around the family table is the best time to try and do it. Um, but engaging our children in conversation about their education, um, trying to, to some degree, uh, engage with their homework. What is it they're being asked to do? Mm-hmm. What's in the textbook? Uh, maybe reviewing some of that with them. Um, and uh, not letting them just soak in what's being fed to them in the school, but actually helping them engage their critical faculty. That's absolutely vital, that they analyze it, that they criticize, uh, that they question. That's vitally important, and parents, single parents, are going to have to play a role in that. I know it's a challenge, mm-hmm. um, but but we do need to do that. One of the things I've always tried to do with my children is engage in robust conversation around the table about these big worldview issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that's even when they're at university, because you know they're still even in their twenties, their yeah. their their minds and their critical capabilities are developing, and they need to interact on these things because they're surrounded with. Uh, uh, voices that are opposed to the Christian faith. So that would be another thing. Um, Another aspect to this is now, obviously, I'm speaking uh, in this context to to Christians, but if there's non-Christians who are listening to, who are concerned about this, this is is vital. You need to become a member of a church. Mm -hmm. You need to join a church, Christians especially, but I would challenge the non-Christian. If, if you are concerned about the direction of culture, then you need to find a, a, a genuinely Christian church. There's several things that that does, especially for the single mum, Natalie, is that it creates, first of all, community. Yes. And in that community, there's a broader community of learning because, among other things, a church, which is about fellowship, the Lord's table, the preaching of the word of God, is a learning community. 
because the there are pastors and teachers and it's a context in which we're learning the word of god and we're learning to see everything through the lens of scripture uh and that is going to be vital for any uh christian family and especially um single parent families where mum is on her own in rare cases dad's on his own uh and there needs to be that broader support so it's mm-hmm. not just support for um, emotional support or possibly financial support through diaconal funds or whatever it's actually the, the the teaching of the word of god and then peers who are christian uh, within the life of the church for our children that can also encourage and challenge um that's been a, a blessing to my children throughout their upbringing is having mm-hmm. peers who they're able to um challenge and be challenged by to be more faithful to consider certain things in terms of the word of god and then i would say um that especially for single mums um and this is why again community is so important we need to be looking out for potential mentors uh, male role models yes. for our for our sons uh in particular uh if there's no dad in the home then there is a natural a deficit there um and uh, one of the provisions that the lord has made because he has such a, a burden and a passion as we read in scripture for the for the widow uh for that is for the woman who's been left alone uh and for the orphan those who've been left the fatherless is what the bible talks yes. about and mm-hmm. that can happen through death of course but it can also happen through abandonment single mums they're on their own so they are the fatherless that that god is talking about and therefore they're, they're more vulnerable Mm-hmm. And so what our sons especially need, our daughters too, but sons especially need is role models and mentors. Uh, and um, that is th- those can be found within the church, um, both in terms of church leaders, uh, but also in terms of other families, mm-hmm. um, uh, older men in the life of the church, trusted people, godly people. Who, who know how to run their own homes, who've shown themselves faithful, um, as well as for our older sons, you know, men who are young men who are a bit further on, faithful young men who may be five, ten years further mm-hmm. on, um, who can who can be a support and an encouragement um, to, to our sons. And then finally, um, I would say that there are there are extracurricular activities that our children can get involved with, especially our, our sons in the single parent environment, um, but our daughters too, uh, where not just now, not just talking about sporting environments, um, which I think are important for, you mm-hmm. know, letting off steam and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that sort of, you know, that young men do need um, those peer environments where uh, they can just enjoy um, time and fellowship uh, mm-hmm. with with other young men um with uh, with groups of young men boys especially like doing things together girls love to talk together uh, but boys like to do stuff together and that's mm-hmm. how they usually bond um and i think that's important and for the christian family for the christian single mum uh especially because of the educational issue worldview education one of the things that we provide at the ezra institute is Christian worldview education for teens. Yes, I was going to ask you if you'd talk about that. I'm glad you're leading yeah. to that. Yes, please continue. Uh, so 
you know, and these are these are camps. Ours isn't the only kind of camp, of course. There are lots. There are a variety of Christian camps, but I think our kind, if I may be so bold, is is especially important because we offer a Christian worldview leadership academy, a sort of a one week intensive time where thirty to sixty um, young people between about the age of fourteen and and seventeen or fifteen and eighteen come together um, for. Uh, teaching in the foundations of a Christian world and life view of a biblical view of reality, uh, where they get taught a, 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 a biblical understanding of what it means to be men and women, uh, what it means to think as a Christian, and they're given resources and tools to be able to process and understand the challenges that are coming to them from their culture. How do you, um, it's really important, you know, the Apostle Paul modeled this when he was evangelizing in the pagan city of Athens. He didn't go in ignorant of of pagan thought and their ideas and their gods and their ideologies. He understood it. He'd read their mm -hmm. poets. He knew their philosophers and he was able to engage them on that level. And so what we try and do is prepare uh, young people to understand why it is they're hearing what they hear at school. Mm -hmm. They get a chance to ask all their hardest questions, which they might be a bit nervous to ask uh, even at home or a bit scared to ask in church and certainly unlikely to ask in school. Yeah, and and get a uh, a serious and robust answer to some of those challenging questions and concerns that they have, and begin to reinforce, rebuild in them the Christian mind, so that they have that that they've got their critical faculty awakened, their defenses are ready. Um, you know, they've got the shield of faith, they've mm -hmm. got the sword of the spirit, they've got the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation. They're fully equipped mm -hmm. um, with the shoes of the gospel of peace. They're ready to confront the fiery darts that are going to come at them. And so we recognize the need of this, Natalie. And so we provide a Worldview Leadership Academy uh, in Canada, in the United States now and beyond um, for young people. So that that's a resource. And we provide scholarships. So for those single mums who don't have the, the money, who don't have the funds, who, who, who for whom that would be a struggle, um, we provide substantial bursaries and scholarships for, for students to come and do that program so that they're not left uh, with that kind of confusion that you talked about. And, mm -hmm. um, and we've seen numerous young people over now five or six years, we've, we've had a chance to train hundreds of young people in Christian worldview. No, yes, and Ernesto had attended a few years back, and it was so transformative, like his face lit up to know the truth and how to handle handle it in, in this modern world. Thank you so much, Dr. Boot, for giving me your time in this excellent, informative uh, interview. I would love to have you back again, if you need <laughs> down the line, somewhere down the line. You I'd be delighted. Yes. Yeah. And we can talk about uh, other issues, uh, education, worldview. Again, I it's been a pleasure, and I'm hoping the audience has uh, gotten a lot of golden nuggets from this. And I appreciate uh, the history behind education, everything leading up to how we handle it today. This was so great. I'm, I'm glad we were able to do it within the time frame that was uh, that was allotted. And I. I pray that your ministry, the Ezra Institute, and all the endeavors will just flourish in this world today. And uh, God bless you, your family. I look forward to uh, seeing Jenny. Uh, you guys are, I think, going to make a visit soon. We are. And, and I hope to see the kids too, because I'll make sure my boys, especially Santiago, to hang out with Isaac if possible. 
Yeah. And uh, yes, again, thank you so much. This has been such a blessing. Appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Natalie. And we'll both look forward to seeing you in person and coming back on the show in due course. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Raising Poets and Pirates and that it encouraged you and was a blessing. If you like this kind of content and more, please subscribe to this podcast. Furthermore, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at hello at raisingpoetsandpirates.com. Also, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to get notifications on the next episode, as well as exclusive information. Just go to raisingpoetsandpirates.com. Thank you. And God bless.